You are listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on October the 4th in a week when the Red Bull energy drink supercharged the hottest transfer story of the autumn, to date that is, and a one-legged bull dressed in red defeated some of the fastest riders in the world at the Famen Arden Classic, so-called Bull of Bull le Toro, or Bull of Lecheré, Arnaud de Lille that is, who unclipped one foot on that finishing straight yet still won. My name is Daniel Freiber, you're listening to the Cycling Podcast and joining me today is another big beast, the line of not Watford, Lionel Burney. Hello Lionel. Hello Daniel, you well? I'm well. Good. Also joining us is a man who's Tour de France this summer, caught heartache at home and abroad, reawakening memories of his tours de force at the race over the years and at other venerable events on the cycling calendar. He's had books written about him, songs written and sung about him, but alas, not this. And in fact, those books and songs have all been written by him. I presume he's written some autobiographical works um, in his vast opus, vast um, literary canon over the years. He is the Marseillais, not the Marseillaise, our own French national anthem. And incidentally, he's here today, partly because he's going to help us talk about that other retiring Frenchman, Thibaut Pinot. He is François Tomazo, coming to us confusingly from Spain. François, how are you? Uh, I'm all right. Yeah, I'm in Spain. I thought you were going to introduce me as the another big bull, but uh, that's all right. Uh, <laughs> your introduction was nice. <laughs> what um, what bull? What animal would you would you see yourself as? Um, oh, not 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 a bull, definitely. definitely. Not, not a bull. I don't know. Uh, otter. I've always oh, liked God. otters. <laughs> God, I was I was going to offer up some other some other kind of apex predator, but no, an otter. <laughs> Um, very good. As a cyclist, have we ever had a cyclist nicknamed the Otter or something? Probably not, actually. It yeah, feels... if there isn't one, we, we should find one quickly. Yeah, it feels... because otters are great animals. Well, Somewhat that's remiss. My opinion. Um, <laughs> Francois, we haven't heard from you for a while. Um, how have you been? What have you been up to? Where have you been? Ah uh, well, I've uh, well after the tour, as you know, I retired from the, from the Tour de France. I, I didn't retire uh, entirely. Uh, I've already started working on the next Tour de France, uh, you know, tourist guide. That's the the thing you get in the internet and the thing that the, uh, the TV uh, anchor guys, uh, you know, uh, plunder to uh, show off their knowledge of French history and and uh, and and heritage. Uh, which means I already know, of course, the course for the next Tour de France, which is going to be announced in, in well, later in two weeks, I think. Uh, but I won't tell you anything. Well, that's that's about it. I uh, and I'm in Caracas because I usually take my holidays in October, and I've got I've got a little place in Caracas, which is a very nice village, not far from Girona, and it's a place where I often see pro riders because it's part of their. All the riders who live in Girona will tell you about. Uh, Brown Sugar, that's a bar there, a night bar, there where you, you might find riders, you know, from time to time. And there you are. <laughs> wow, wow. Will we ever find you sort of riffing in the corner with your guitar in Brown Sugar? I can imagine that. 
Well, yeah, yeah. That, that, there's actually, yeah, there's actually guest stars. I mean, you know, musicians playing uh, at, at at Brown Sugars. I, I've actually never uh, taken my guitar there. I mean, you know, I, I'd rather have a few beers than uh, than I'm I'm too old for this stuff now. And Francois, <laughs> just going back to the intro, you have you have written songs about yourself. I presume I presume there have been autobiographical elements in some of your songs, some of your oeuvre. Well, like like every kid that picks up a guitar and sings, you know, you start to uh, write about your broken love affairs, I suppose. So, uh, yeah, that, that there's always an autobiographical element in there. I'm I'm not sure I was my songs have ever been as witty as I don't know Morrissey's or uh, you know or socially aware as Paul Weller's, but. Uh, yeah, I've, I've I've done my best. No, I, actually, when I write songs, I, I'd rather write about things that are ca- kind of foreign to me, like like uh, you know, uh, uh, tell stories of characters like uh, Ray Davies or guys like this, you know. And there's a song I wrote that's called The Rider. There's one one song about cycling. You can find it on YouTube if you look uh, well enough. I was going to say, <laughs> as a Frenchman, you should write a song about winning the Tour de France. That's a concept. Very very foreign to most Frenchmen or has been for the last 35 years. Um, Francois, Lionel, should we crack on with this week's uh, newly abridged, Lionel, newly concise news roundup? Let's see how we get on. Um, I mentioned in the intro that Arnaud Delis had won another one-day race. That was, in fact, his 15th in short-form racing out of 19 in total since starting his career at the start of last year. That was on Sunday. The previous day, there had been another big one-dayer, namely the Giro dell'Emilia, finishing atop the Madonna di San Luca climb in Bologna. There, all eyes all day were on Primoz Roglic. Firstly, because at the start of the race, he very matter-of-factly announced he will leave Jumbo Visma at the end of the season. Much more about that later. And secondly, because later in the afternoon, he won the race for the third time, attacking from a very select group in the final kilometre and... Crucially, distancing Tadej Pogacar, who nonetheless held on to take second in what was a delicious antipasto for the Tour of Lombardy at the weekend and a pretty quintessential roglification. The women's race in Emilia was won on the same day by Cecily Utrup-Ludwig ahead of her FDJ teammate Marta Cavalli. Staying in Italy, but time travelling forward to Monday, neither Rog or Pog were present at the Coppa Bernocchi. Um, in which, in which our good friend, the Motown maestro, Larry Warbus, was in the early break of the day. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that, chaps. Um, that race was won by Rog's soon-to-be ex-teammate, Wout Van Aert. On Wednesday, we then had the Trevalli Varesine, where both of the Slovenian Galacticos were present, but both were upstaged by a very fired-up Ilan Van Vilder. Ilan Van Vilder, party liaison. Have you ever seen that, Lionel? National Lampoons, classic National Lampoons film, no? No, it doesn't ring a bell, actually. Van uh, Van Vilder's Christmas Vacation? (laughs) Oh, yeah, the Chevy Chase. Are you thinking Chevy Chase? Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, He, where was I? He escaped from uh, Pog, Rog and others in the finale, solo to the win. His post-race interview Mm. lamented the shit, as he put it. Can we use that word? Um, better known to you and I as the proposed Jumbo Visma Sudal Quick Step merger. Again, much more about that later on in the episode. Other races in the last few days: the Tour of Lancarbi was won by EF Education Easy Post Simon Cart. The Crow Race 
by the Venezuelan sprinter Orlius Aular of Caja Rural. That was a strange one that Aular was able to win the GC in a six-day stage race. Not much climbing there, although there are some big mountains in Croatia. Well, in France, Arnaud Demar celebrated new beginnings by claiming his first bouquet for Arkea Samsic at the Tour of the Vendée, where Peter Sagan of Total Energy ended a professional road career bejeweled by 121 victories, including 18 Grand Tour stages, three rainbow jerseys, um, two monuments. It was a, a quite an anticlimactic end to Sagan's glittering career in uh, quite an anticlimactic season, at the end of an anticlimactic season. Um, a lot of goodbyes. I think we're going to talk a bit more, chaps, aren't we, about some farewells later in the episode, notably Thibaut Pino and others at the Tour of Lombardy. Um, I mentioned Demar winning in the Vendée for Arkea. Two other bits of news for that team. One, the Italian sprinter Luca Mozzato winning Banche, Chime Banche on Wednesday. And secondly, another sprinter, Nasser Buani, announcing that he's also retiring from professional cycling. Buani, who turned 33 in July, admitted that he'd never fully recovered from a horror crash in the Tour of Turkey in April 2022. Nonetheless, he retires with 70 pro wins to his name, including two, sorry, three Vuelta stage wins and three Giro stage wins. Um, I said we'd talk about farewells later. Maybe we should just press pause here, lest we forget um, to talk about Buani later, um, Francois. But it's been a fine career, hasn't it? Maybe not a career that's delivered on all of its early promise. And there's been a lot of controversy in there, you know, sort of fractious breakups with teams, um, fractious finishes, sprint finishes themselves, a lot of criticism from other sprinters, but it has been a fine career. Yeah. I mean, Buani is crashed, is crashed far too many times for his uh, own good. I remember when he started to uh, collapse, actually, for him, was in Paris-Nice. He was, uh, I think he was leading Paris-Nice with the yellow jersey on, and he crashed uh, out of the race. And it's, in what, it, it, it then, then he had ups and downs, but he went from bad to worse, you know, from that uh, kind of original crash uh, on. Uh, and and when when you start crashing and having those kind of problems and you, when you lose confidence, like you know, we know sprinters are like uh, you know goal scorers in football. When you lose the confidence, then uh, it's very difficult to get it back. And uh, as you say, Buhani was really, really probably the most promising of the young French sprinters at the time with Demarque, uh, uh, Cocar, and all that uh, bunch. And uh, he never entirely delivered. But well, mind you, he, he had a all right career but it, it didn't actually become the the uh probably the sprinter had the potential to become i i must admit i always quite liked him um in dealings with him he was different he had a bit of a, a swagger about him that not that many sprinters of that generation had they were all pretty clean cut and in some senses vanilla there was always con controversy with um Bueni. and i always thought he was quite authentic he was kind of uh, true to himself. I didn't know Francois. I learned this yesterday. We were just reading about him in L'Equipe, I think it was, that his wife is very famous. Um, she's an actress and director, Hafsia uh, Erzi. Uh, she's quite a, a decorated young actress and, and director, I believe. Yeah, he was... 
But he was a very strong personality, well, he still is. But in many ways, the, probably the, the sprinter, he looks the, that's the more kind of similar to, to him in terms of the personality and style of sprinting was Cavendish. Because he, Buani is not very powerful, you know, but he's very fast. He's, a, that's, he's got this kind of velocity uh, and he knew how to, you know, move his way around in a tricky bunch. Sometimes he did it a little bit too, uh, how could I say, roughly. Uh, it probably came from his past as a boxer, you know. His, his first sport was boxing, and the thing is uh, that Buhani had. I, I don't know if, you know, I won't go into the the, the, the question of whether uh, he, he suffered from uh, racism in France, but it's it's probably the case. You know, he went uh, as you know the Northern African uh, immigration in France is. Uh, well, we, we, we have real problems with that. And, I'm, and Buani was, you know, is from Epinal in the, the Vosges region. You, you could tell that there was always in his, uh, the way he was riding, uh, 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 how could I say, a real desire for revenge. Uh, he was very revengeful. You, I, I don't know what about, uh, whether he was, and he was very kind of uh, aggressive, even as a, as a person to talk to. He was, I mean, in terms of talking to interviewing a, a, a rider, we know Mark Cavendish can be difficult. Uh, uh, no. Buhani was the, w- Buhani was probably even more difficult most of the time, and uh, and 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 the, the 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 funny thing is one day at the start of a welter of a welter stage, he lo- I think he loved the welter Buhani. Uh, I was at the start and he came to me, and and uh, and. You know, it happens to, to you from time to time. And I mean, he, he was eager to talk, and so he decided to talk to me. And I discovered then, because he was pleasant and he was relaxed and uh, he had something to say, and he was not in a defensive mode, I, I, I discovered a very bright, uh, pleasant, and, and very in, you know, interesting and complex uh, uh, person. So I think, that, I think he was. I think he, the, the, the image he gave was actually quite different from the, the the many years, you know. There you are. <laughs> Chaps, another retirement, finally one that garnered a bit less attention at the weekend was, well, that was the news that at age 75, the Anti-Marche chief, Hilaire van der Schuren, is bowing out after 50 years working in teams, never rode as a professional, started his career alongside Eddie Merckx's legendary DS Lomotrysens. And in the words of Marc Madiot a few years ago, he was one of the last dinosaurs on earth or one of the last dinosaurs in professional cycling. Sort of compliment, not an insult. Um, he was a great character. Any dealings with him, chaps? Well, I just remember a couple, couple of things. Uh, one uh, was the stage where Mark Cavendish finished what was it, almost an hour outside the time limit, was it? Or not outside the time limit, but he was almost an hour after Geraint Thomas had won the stage. Where uh, was La, La Rosière. Yeah. La Rosière. Um, and because it was a, a stage finish where there was only one route back down the mountain and that was back down the race course, the entire uh, t- caravan of vehicles, team cars, was all just queued up behind the finish line waiting uh, to get back down the mountain. And... Um, yeah, I just was happened to be walking past the Antomarche or Wanty team car, I think it was, and uh, a very grumpy Hilaire van der Schuren was there. And he's just looking at the, the clock on the finish line and he said, uh, how, whatever the time was, I think it was in Ure 20 minutes or whatever it was, you know, you're just a real grumpy um, Belgian, probably quite keen to get off the mountain. And the other one was Francois, I can't remember, it was a real flat bread basket stage 
on a Friday that Dylan Grunewigen won, but they'd been incredibly slow. And I think Kalmajan, no, um, oh, what's the French rider who now works as a consultant on French TV? Alfredo. Um, Alfredo. Alfredo, that's Joan it. Alfredo had gone in the break on his own all day. No one had joined him. It had been a real slow day. And um, the wanty team car kind of came through the finish, you know, the deviation and up to the team bus and sort of careered onto the grass next to the team bus. And the door flung open and Van der Schuren, moving pretty sprightly for the, you know, late 70s, uh, just ran off to the nearest hedge to have a wee because obviously it had been a very slow day, sat in the team car and he was obviously busting to, uh, well, use the non-existent facilities. But, you know, the sort of glamour moments of the Tour de France, those two stick in my mind for Van der Schuren. But, um just, you know, his kind of legacy as a sports director, um, team manager in Belgium, there'll be dozens of riders who've come through his various teams, you know, in the, in the 90s, Colstrop and Palmans and, uh, you know, a real fixture on the Kermes scene, a real uh, sort of big figure in bridging that gap between sort of development cycling in Belgium and what is now the World Tour. So, yeah, a, a, a very long and distinguished career if a little old-fashioned, perhaps, in his methods. Yeah, um, just, to, just to underline that, Lionel, there was a story a few years ago, uh, you mentioned Yuan Alfredo, he told the story of how in the Tour de France, not many years ago, there was a lot of sort of eye-rolling in the team when on the night before a rest day at the Tour de France, he sent around a group text message, um, which said simply, no women in the rooms tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe... Uh, Maybe sort of. Yeah, well, I, I, I have another memory, the same sort. I mean, I think it was the same tour you mentioned, uh, Lionel. I was, I, 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 there was one tour I was doing with you guys at the second podcast, and uh, uh, but uh, occasionally during the tour, I had to 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 work for the for ASO for their website because they have their off days, and I, I was taken to. It was in Brittany somewhere. I was taken to my hotel some. Ibis or whatever it was, and when I came there, of course, the kitchen was closed. I mean, uh, <laughs> famous, you know, the things that happens to us. So I was, I was, I was a little bit, uh, I was a little bit angry, and so I, I left the uh, the hotel and across the road with another hotel, probably a Kiryad or whatever it was, and, uh, and 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 I got the same answer from from the the owners. Oh no, no, kitchen is closed, and the Intermarché. Uh, the team were were there, you know, having their dinner at that hotel. And Hiller saw me and said, "What's the problem?" I said, "Well, I can't eat." They said the kitchen is closed. So come with us. And I, I had dinner with the Intermarché team, and I, I I ate the same stuff as the guys. And it was not very good to say, <laughs> to be to be honest. But at least I had something to eat. Thanks to Hiller. So so many thanks again, Hiller, for what you did to me that day. Saved my life. <laughs> Definitely worth a tribute. This tribute, this short homage on the cycling podcast, chaps. Finally. Last item on the um, in the news roundup this week, hot off the press. It's it's an averted and aborted retirement. Mark Cavendish, we believe there's a well, there's a teaser been sent by Astana, which strongly hints that he'll be in the peloton next year. I believe that is the case. I believe that Mikhail Morkov is also going to join Astana as his lead out man. I believe there's another lead out man on the way. He's Cavendish's Greek coach. Um, Vasilis Antostopoulos from um, Sudar Quickstep is also on his way. And there might be an announcement soon also about Cavendish's plans beyond that. Well, um, it's, it's certainly confirmed that he is going to stay it's, with Astana next okay. year. A press release has come out as you, pretty much as you were speaking there, Daniel. Um, and just to take a small 
insert ourselves into um, Michael Morkoff joining Astana. Francois, if you remember during the tour, um, Mitch Docker, who was with us on the opening 10 days of the tour, he received a text message from Mark Renshaw asking for Morkoff's number. And I think that's where the kind of interest um, this was after Cavendish had, had, had crashed out of the uh, the Tour de France and there was all the speculation about whether he would go on and do another year. Astana, very early on, made it clear that the door would be open, didn't they? And, and they would leave that decision to Cavendish. They'd be happy to have him. And it was just interesting that clearly Astana were having thoughts about how best to support Cavendish next year. And I think they'd seen that Morkoff had kind of lost his role, really, in uh, the Sudal Quickstep team simply because Jakobsen wasn't wasn't sprinting after the the crash that he'd had and and Morkoff was at a bit of a loose end. And yeah, well, we'll talk about uh, Sudal Quickstep, won't we? But uh, there'll be plenty of riders looking for some kind of escape hatch from there, I guess, in the next few weeks. Very, very last thing on the News Roundup chats. Before I forget, I promised one of our listeners, um, Jeff Nagel, talking about, you know, riders and personalities that have sort of um, animated and, and entertained us over the last um, 10, 20 years. And Lionel, as you know, and as you know as well, Francois, I used to work for a magazine called Pro Cycling Magazine. One of our listeners, Jeff Nagel, has a complete archive of Pro Cycling Magazines in Wales, somewhere in Wales. I don't know the exact location. And um, he wants someone to take them off his hands. I think his wife wants someone to take them off Jeff's hands. And he contacted me uh, last week and uh, asked if I would sort of send out the message on the podcast. So if you're anywhere near Wales, um, I think it'd probably quite quite difficult to freight to get a whole archive of pro cycling magazines shipped overseas but if you're interested then write to us on twitter or instagram or um, via email and we will put you in touch with jeff the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science but good day, huh? we will enjoy it well that was primoz roglic doing an impression of me doing an impression of primoz roglic um that was i'm not even gonna i was gonna i was gonna sort of echo it there um parrot it but i'm not allowed Lionel, because we've been contacted by a listener who um who accused me of mocking primoz roglic mocking his accent with my impressions of him um i should point out and and sort of suggesting that people any any one of the the sort of slavic nations would be very insulted by my impressions of primoz roglic i of course am partly polish so you know um, I feel so. I feel slightly aggrieved that I'm not allowed to do Primoz Roglic impressions anymore. Well, I um, mean, uh, impressionism is quite a, a long-standing, you know, segment of the sort of the the the, the comedy of no. I mean, I think also uh, long-term people listeners. have made careers out of doing impressions. I mean, well, you, I'm not suggesting you could monetize your Roglic impression. No. To be fair, though. But, uh, maybe they'll make a maybe maybe we should hold a referendum and um, <laughs> make a ret- they'll make a return next week. Yeah, um, and that'll sort it I out think, one way or the other. Well, I, I, I suppose think, it depends who your your impression. When we talk about uh, Sudal Quickstep later, you'll be you know you'll be allowed to uh, impression Patrick Lefevre. <laughs> Patrick Lefevre. Um, I I also think that committed long term listeners of the pro cycling pro cycling the cycling podcast will know that I'm. Guiltily, I must guiltily admit, and pro- people can probably, well, they've probably been able to figure this out. As much as we have to remain objective and we can't really be fans of any rider, I'm a bit of a closet roglista. 
Um, I do definitely have a soft spot for Roglic. So it's done in affection. It should the the impressions make a return. Um, they will be affectionate impressions. Daniel, if you were, I don't know, 18, 19 now, just getting into cycling, Roglic would be your Pavel Tonkov of this era yes, for sure. Yes, absolutely. He even looks like him slightly. But the, the question, the big cliffhanger, one of the big cliffhangers last week, and I think I last week even said that I thought this season, this silly season, this crazy season um, of mooted room, mooted mergers sorry would end with either Primoz Roglic or Remco Evenepoel riding for Ineos Grenadiers chaps I no longer believe that's going to be the case because well we heard earlier on in the episode that at the start of the Giro dell'Emilia on Saturday Primoz Roglic really surprised everyone by confirming that he would leave Jumbo Visma it was a it was an unusual sort of announcement I don't know how coordinated or choreographed it was I think I suspect not at all because Jumbo Visma then sort of put out a tweet um, and a message on social media suggesting that this sort of had been planned and this was almost like an official goodbye um, it seemed as though they'd been maybe a little bit blindsided however the bo- bottom line is was that Roglic is leaving Jumbo Visma and that obviously opened the opened up the the issue the question of where he was going um, now if Chaps, you'll indulge me for a minute. Lionel, I already sort of briefed you on this. Um, uh, Shortly after we recorded the podcast last week, I was sent through the back channels. um, I was sent some sort of anonymous, well, they weren't anonymous. I know where they'd, I knew where they'd come from. Photographs, um, which had purportedly been taken at something called the Red Bull Athletic Center in Salzburg. I won't say who sent the photos or who took the photos. Um, And they showed a Cervelo, uh, a Jumbo Visma Cervelo, and a Bora specialized time trial bike. And they also showed a Primoz Roglic personalized kit bag with shoes that looked very much like Primoz Roglic's racing shoes next to them um, in a size that looked very much like the size of Primoz Roglic's feet. Although we talked a couple of years ago, we we, we heard this urban myth or rumour of Primoz Roglic's shoes getting smaller in the course of a Giro d'Italia and him having to change the size of his shoes. Anyway, chaps, um, this, this led me to think that Bora Hansgrohe was definitely a, a possible destination for Primoz Roglic. However, however... Um, these photos needed to be checked and needed to be verified. And I then, well, went down a very deep rabbit hole um, of watching all sorts of watching hours of videos of Red Bull athletes um, who had visited this Red Bull athletic um, performance center outside Salzburg, checking wood panels, cross-referencing wood panels. I finally found uh, a Red Bull athlete who had been to the, or who had filmed in the changing rooms of this building near Salzburg. And sure enough, the mosaic matched um, the flooring that you could see underneath Primoz Roglic's kit bag. So this sort of led me to believe that uh, Bora Hansgrohe was certainly uh, a likely destination for Primoz Roglic. Obviously, we've spent the last few days trying to check this and a consensus 
certainly seems to have emerged over the last few days that that is indeed where he's going. I have been teased, chaps, mercilessly by people in Primoz Roglic's entourage who have not wanted to give anything away. Um, I've been getting pictures of extractor fans. Um, I got one message from... <laughs> I've got one message... Bora, of course, um, uh, well, they manufacture extractor fans. I got one message the other day from someone, I won't say who, in Primoz Roglic's entourage showing two two large T-bone steaks and the message underneath said fillets of Australian beef reared in the desolate meadows of Derby in Yorkshire spot the deliberate mistake this person is not English um, rigorously kosher purchased from Lidl ready to be thrown on the grill in Salt Bay's Abu Dhabi restaurant with its Bora equipped kitchen to be enjoyed with Bahraini guests over a glass of Alta Navarra red wine um so, yes, um, Primoz Roglic's entourage has certainly been trying to create a bit of a smokescreen. However, I think I'm not the only journalist now who is pretty convinced that Primoz Roglic is going to sign for Bora Hansgrohe. Chaps, off the bat, your reaction to that? Well, I think it's the, the rumour is swirling certainly in that direction now, isn't it? I mean, we're going to have to wait and see uh, you know, what gets confirmed after... Uh, Il Lombardia at the weekend because Roglic did say that he would confirm where he will be riding next season after the final monument of the season. Uh, I mean, I suppose Roglic, given the amount of money that he can still command, bear in mind he is 34 at the end of this month. Yeah. It's a lot of money on a, uh, an athlete approaching his mid-30s. Admittedly, you know, turned professional fairly late, didn't he? Uh, it certainly didn't arrive in the World Tour until 2016 uh, with Lotto, NL Jumbo, as they were then. Um, there's really not that many teams that would have the budget and the space to, um, to make him the sort of offer that he can still command, I guess. I mean, Daniel, you mentioned Ineos. Um, they would be perhaps the the other um, most likely candidate to to be able to spend that sort of money. But Bora does sort of make sense, really, doesn't it? It's a, it's a sort of the cherry on the top of an already quite impressive Grand Tour cake. You know, they've got sort of a, a small handful of you know really talented Grand Tour riders that could give them options across all three of the Grand Tours. And then Roglic comes in as a you know, real bona fide leader for the Tour de France. And it gives Roglic what he wants, which, you know, we must assume is he wants to be the you know outright leader of a team for the Tour, but with really good backup. Mm. So I could definitely see it happening. And I think the sort of, you know, the, oh, it's the man happen. in the pub. I think it's, it's the man in the, in the pub talking about you know what's swirling around the, the some of the other teams the rumor mill yeah, it does seem like Bora Hansgrohe is the the, the favored or the most likely option well, the man in, the man in the your pub. detective work your detective work Daniel just just clinches it really Columbo. and the man the man in the pub talking to the man in the pub we'll get to I'll, I'll go to you in a second Francois but um incidentally Bora's boss Ralph Denk um, admitted in July that he'd held talks with Roglic in 2015 when Roglic was a complete unknown uh, very sort of freshly retired ski jumper they held talks in a Salzburg beer garden and um, it was only the fact that Jumbo Visma was then Lotto NL Jumbo had offered he said a five figure sum more than what um, Denk was then offering that he went to Lotto NL and not to 
Bora back then. Yeah, I mean, that could have changed the, the destiny of, of Bora, couldn't it? At the time, they were Bora Argon 18. And at the end of that 2016 season, uh, which had um, Denk offered a bit more money, might well have been Roglic's debut season for Bora. At the end of that season, uh, there was the, 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 the arrival of Specialized Peter Sagan and uh, Bora Hansgrohe, as they were, as they became, you know, took a very different um, direction and sort of launched themselves into, you know, the, the kind of the next level in the World Tour. So, yeah, a real sliding doors moment, that. My view on that is, uh, as we all see now in the uh, in the World Tour, on the in the, you know, in the uh, UCI top flight, there, there's kind of the big three uh, have emerged and that might be the big four with, Bora, uh, and the rest of the teams just simply, as you say, don't have the financial means to, to uh, you know, cater for someone like Roglic, which is a bit of a problem because if you've only got three or four big teams, like it's a little bit the case in football as well, then uh, you you will always end up with leadership problems, like we had in the Welta, because there there are there are more GC. You know, contenders or guys thinking they have a GC uh, chance in whichever Grand Tour, uh, uh, then there are teams. And uh, uh, I, I didn't have my, my chance to express my views on, I don't want to get back on the Kuss, uh, Roglic and all the Welta uh, business because it's, it's highly controversial. But still, uh, I, I, I realized that everybody at the time during the Welter was was was, think, was in kind of Sepp Kuss's mind, you know, saying, "Oh, what a shame it would be if he doesn't win," and uh, oh, it's 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 dreadful what these guys are doing to him, you know, like attacking him and blah blah blah. But nobody kind of put themselves in uh, Primoz Roglic's mind, you know. You start a Welter, you have a chance to win it four times, which is uh, something to 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 mark history. You've got the number one on bib on your back, so you're 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 the team leader. You know, when, when people say, oh, you shouldn't attack your leader on the Grand Tour, the, the leader was never Sepp Kuss. The leader was Primoz Roglic. Let's not forget that. And in my, uh, I try to, to remember when uh, a team leader, you know, gifted uh, a Grand Tour to a, to a teammate. And I think it's never happened. You see, it, it, it was a first. So if you put yourself in Primoz Roglic's mind, well, uh, I would, um, and if, if when you're a champion, a champion wants to win. A champion doesn't give, uh, doesn't make gifts. And to me, it was absolutely unavoidable that he left uh, Jumbo Visma. There was no way uh, he could stay. Uh, that, that, that's one thing. So, which, 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 you know, and the, the fact that you have these, but I think these sort of problems, if we, st if we stuck with three big teams or four big teams, we'll, we'll have that kind of problems. What will happen if uh, Brendan McNulty has got GC ambitions or Adam Yates uh, with uh, Tari Pogacar? What will Movistar in the past, Onse, I mean, all the big teams in the past have had that kind of problems. And, uh, and even, if Roglic joins um, Bora, there are the guys, Jai Inle, uh, Vlasov, who, who might question uh, the, that, uh, mm. you know, that, that, that arrival. Right. So, so it's, it's, it's a very, very tricky one. The, the last thing I wanted to say, coming back to the Welta situation, which was exciting to watch you know, from, the, from the outside, was that to me, uh, Sepkus's victory and Roglic's woos and probably Vingegaard's uh, woos as well as are not being able to win the Welter when they might have. 
uh, gave me the impression that we, we, we've come in another age uh, in cycling. Well, it's not only in cycling, but cycling is also part of the, the, this world, is that who makes team tactics and strategies these days in 2023? Not the managers, not the team coaches, not the riders. It's the social networks. That's what I, that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I'm not sure. I, I, think I, I, I would I definitely agree with you, Francois, about the Vuelta, but the problem was that Jonas Vingegaard was kind of stuck in the middle there and he did demonstrate on a couple of occasions that that he certainly looked better than Roglic. I mean, maybe Roglic was riding with, you know, a metaphorical handbrake on. But um, yeah, I agree with you. Roglic was was squeezed into the the the, uh, the least enviable position of those three riders, really. Uh, and you're right, all the focus was on Kuss and it was a kind of the, 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 the romantic... Um, for a lot of people, it was the, the romantic outcome, but it's, it probably has made it uh, inevitable that Roglic would leave the team. And uh, but I, I, I also think that it's this whole kind of saga, and, and I'm kind of reluctant to skip to the end of the the possible merger between Jumbo Visma and Sudal Quickstep, which is starting to look less like a merger than, uh, I don't know, some kind of insect that has to eat another insect in order to secure its own survival. Uh, there's a, an awful lot of um, you know interest involved in this, not least um, the, the the team management and uh, license holders, the riders, and all of the backroom staff who have been thrown into real turmoil by this situation. And I think what it really highlights is just what a fragile ecosystem the World Tour is. You know, Jumbo Visma has just won three Grand Tours in the same season, unprecedented level of success, certainly in modern cycling. Uh, they've really cracked every aspect of cycling over the last um, two, three seasons, because let's not forget, they also have Wout van Aert, who is pretty handy across all of the classics. Uh, they've built the biggest, strongest team in cycling. They've known for a while that the supermarket chain, Jumbo, is withdrawing its sponsorship, and so they need to replace that sponsorship. But they've almost grown you know, too big to uh, attract another kind of corporate entity to sponsor the team on in a landscape that is now increasingly dominated by sponsorship from either um, incredibly wealthy, uh, benevolent um, benefactors such as Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos or nation states, as in the case of UAE and Bahrain and others. And so I think it really kind of is starting to exploit or, or highlight the, the the, the vulnerabilities in the entire UCI World Tour system. And and the UCI put out a statement this week in response to uh, the possible merger, just to point out that if it does go through, it has to meet all of the UCI's rules and regulations regarding contracts. Um, you know, that will create some issues because Sudal Quickstep has, I believe, 23 riders contracted for next season. Uh, Jumbo Visma has 26 riders contracted for next season. Uh, they'll only be able to take 30 of those. So there's obviously um, serious implications for the contracted riders. Um, Ilan van Wilder's reaction after his race win is, uh, you know, that that's pretty understandable, really. But the UCI have, have reiterated or they, they stated that if the merger goes through, the World Tour will actually shrink to 17 teams for the next two seasons. And so... It's almost like it's it's weakening, um, you know, the entri- entire structure of the sport as a whole, as at a time when the most successful team is seeking to secure uh, its survival for the medium term. 
you know, it is an intriguing story. There's a there's a lot of interest. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of riders. You know, we're going to be wondering where they're going to end up. What the what the solutions will be for some of them. Um, but actually, on a sort of underlying level, it's not um, it's not presenting a, a picture of health. I don't think for the World Tour. I don't know what you guys think. Chaps, can we stick a pin in the merger chat and we'll come back to that in just a second. Um, just a couple more things on Roglic. Um, just on, well, Lionel, you talked there about funding and there's been some speculation about Red Bull being involved. I think mainly or purely due to the fact that he was spotted where he was spotted at the Red Bull Athletic um, Performance Centre um, or Athlete Performance Centre. Um, uh, there's nothing at the moment to suggest that is the case, although the teams do have a, a connection. Also, Red Bull have this history of promoting, sponsoring multidiscipline athletes. And we've seen it in cycling with Tony Pouts as a rider at Bora, the former Schemo or Ski Mountaineer. Tom Pidcock, of course, Wout Van Aert. So that is a possibility. Also specialised are, well, they're obviously bowing out from Total Energy with Sagan. So in theory, who knows? They might have some, um, they might have some budget. But again, that's not been confirmed. We think that one of the Yumbo Visma coaches, Mark Lamberts, who's also Wout Van Aert's long-term coach, which is going with um, with Roglic. Um, just on, well, on whether it's like to succeed or fail, chaps, I was trying to think of an example because these are, these are high-risk moves. I think most, if you speak to someone or if you'd have spoken to someone like Dave Brailsford five or six years ago, these are the really high-risk moves, guys who are sort of getting to the top of or even beyond the kind of apex of their age curve and still cost a lot of money. And, you know, Red Bull have sort of embarked on this pivot to become a grand tour team i think maybe they've decided that jai hindley you know he's he won the giro last year but he's probably he's possibly not going to win the tour de france vlasov same they've signed danny martinez maybe they've also well they don't see him as a future tour de france rider and then you know there are other factors to do with the team's image for example i was thinking about the netflix documentary last year and they filmed at bora hansgrove but didn't use any of the pictures they were a team that was left out of that of that documentary so you know there may be there may be a penny has dropped with Bora that um, they do need well they need an apex predator to use the phrase that I used earlier and and that is Roglic but you know just think I was trying to think of other riders who've gone to move teams at sort of this stage of their career and it's really well it's resulted in a grand tour win you could maybe draw parallels with Cadell Evans who joined BMC I looked I looked this up he was just about to turn 32 and Roglic is about to turn 34 and that was a, a sort of short-term solution and it worked um but Roglic realistically he's got one maybe two shots at it hasn't he in the same by the same token I I'm always a little bit reluctant to uh how could I say that uh to feel sorry for team managers in cycling uh, you know it, it always in the at this time of the season in August September October they they're all crying for uh, money and and saying how miserable they are and how difficult it is to find sponsors. I mean, Patrick Lefebvre has done that every season for the past 25 years. Jean-René Bernardo has been doing that for the, forever. And they're, they're always kind of, you have the impression it's part of the, the, the way they negotiate contracts to say, oh my God, you know, 
Jonathan Waters, you know, our good friend Jonathan Waters is always also in the same, I could I say, complaining mode about how difficult it is. And they're still around. Uh, I, I think that, unfortunately, cycling is not the only field uh, of economy uh, that's struggling to, you know, that, that, that's, that has to find the, the right deals, the right sponsorship. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a very fierce competition between sports and between uh, companies to, to, to find the right... Uh, so, so I, I'm not too worried. I mean, the, the World Tour will be there next season, and I'm sure Jumbo Visma will be there. Uh, and, and about the merger, well, let's see. I, I, I'm still waiting for, for it to happen. I, we haven't seen it yet. Uh, no, nothing's been announced. We don't know what form it's going to take. Uh, so, you know, we, we're kind of discussing it. It's exciting, but we, we'll, it'll be more, much more interesting to discuss it when, when it's happened and when we know the terms of the agreement. You, you were talking about Red Bull, uh, Daniel. I know Red Bull pretty well from covering uh, winter sports like skiing. And usually the, their policy is more to sponsor individual athletes than, than take over teams. Well, they did. It's a little bit different in Formula One, but there's probably more money in Formula One than there is in uh, cycling. So my impression is that they might... Well, uh, and, and also they, they're into uh, athletes that have a kind of connection to Austria or the, or the kind of winter sports uh, scene, which is yeah, the case of which is the case of which, yeah. which is the case of Roglic because he was a former uh, a ski jumper. Something you might not have known, but he was. <laughs> is he pivoting back to ski jumping? Then is that the is that the angle we're all missing? Yeah, I mean, just on the merger or the potential merger between. Well, I keep calling them Jumbo Visma, but it'd be kind of Visma, I guess, wouldn't it? Visma and Sudar Quickstep, the two organisations. And there is going to be a bit of a timetable for this. The UCI in their statement yesterday said that they will publish a press release on October the 19th containing the list of teams that have sent that have submitted the essential information uh, to continue with their World Tour licenses for 2024. Remember, we're in a, well, next season is the middle year of a, of a three-year World Tour uh, cycle. So there's an awful lot, I guess, behind the scenes to be sorted out. And Adam Hansen, in his role as president of the CPA, as obviously will have his eyes on... Uh, how things play out for riders, especially the Sudal Quickstep riders who are under contract to the Decolef organisation, the, the licence holder, which is uh, obviously the Lefebvre Bacala uh, company, which owns that World Tour licence. So it's perhaps not quite as straightforward as some of the other recent mergers or takeovers where there's been a licence up for grabs and a, and a sponsor's pulled out from one team and there's been a sort of cut and shut i'm thinking of you know ccc which had originally been bmc uh, they uh, gave way to allow uh, wanty circus wanty as they were then uh, now antimarche to come into the world tour and you know when katusha was finishing israel was able to take over the world tour license and uh, take a place in the world tour it's a, not quite as straightforward and i think the fact that uci have actually said something about what is let's face it uh, at this stage just conjecture and rumor you know no matter how much uh, there is uh, to back it up i think the uci making their position clear at this stage is possibly quite significant because um, yeah, there, there will be significant fallout, not just for the riders, but for staff as well. Well, and also, Lionel, this this affects deeply, it affects a lot of other riders who are on other teams who haven't currently signed a contract for next year because the bottom falls out of the market because the quick step 
the pseudo quickstep riders, a lot of them who who aren't absorbed by Jumbo Visma, and I think there are only six spots at Jumbo Visma, and um, they will in theory still get paid because the contracts will ha- have to be honoured. However, um, what that means is that you know they're they're, they're able to offer themselves to pro conti teams for free essentially the pro conti teams aren't going to be paying anything and obviously that's very advantageous very appealing to those teams rather than say sign another rider from another team who's out of contract and who might cost a hundred thousand two hundred thousand so um yeah the ripple effects are could potentially stretch very far and wide yeah, it could also stop, well, not stop careers, but remember Peter Sagan going to Total Energy, which was a strange move. But a rider like Julien Lafilippe, if there's a merger, what does he, you know, he's, he's, he's a, a guy who's been world champion. Who's, you know, we know, all know the career of Julien Lafilippe. It, obviously, this guy has no place in a merger. Uh, and so what, what becomes of a rider of that caliber? Uh, is probably out, but where? You know, I mean, that, that's that, there's lots of. Uh, I was thinking we were discussing, you know, uh, uh, off the uh, the mic about maybe one one solution that there's been kind of a rising in the Cavendish case when he was signed for Quickstep uh, is also for riders to sign individual contracts with companies that uh, pay their salaries and stuff. I mean, I've I've always found that in the the the, the financial field we're discussing. Uh, the riders is always kind of the missing link. Uh, that 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 that's their role, their part as you know, uh, financial uh, stakeholders is never taken into account. So maybe may, maybe you know maybe they can negotiate their own. I mean, Roglic might be a little bit too expensive, maybe for Bora, and maybe there's ways for Bora to 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 pay for Roglic thanks to the individual sponsors, and maybe there's also a lead to be to be followed. Well, that know. that is the increasingly the model. Of, well, we talked off Mike again. Francois, didn't we, about Red Bull and the model that they've employed for a number of years in terms of endorsements. And it's very individually based, partly because a lot of the athletes that they've sponsored have been competing in individual type sports. But um, the athlete sort of becomes their own media company and with social media now and the way that athletes individual athletes are able to to leverage social media um that definitely becomes a, a an interesting solution um that th- they are sort of their own entity they have their own sponsor their own platform their own way of selling themselves but obviously in cycling they still have to compete um in a team don't they so that that's well something to keep our eye on as far as Roglic is concerned but just going back to Jumbo Visma a second um you know, we still, well, we haven't tackled yet and we haven't touched on the issue of where Remco Avenepoel is going to end up. Now, a lot of sort of blame has been directed towards Patrick Lefebvre. I think partly because Patrick Lefebvre has almost cultivated, almost cultivated or certainly been tagged with this image of pantomime villain for various reasons, justified and not over the last few years. Um, but he's a minority shareholder in the Colef, it's called, isn't it? The management company, the paying agent. Um, and the majority shareholder is the Czech billionaire's Denek Bakala. And any merger that takes place would have to take place with his blessing. Now, you know, just speaking to Belgian c- colleagues over the last few um, days, a picture seems to be emerging of well, Bakala being the main sort of engine, the main um, the, the, the main architect of this potential uh, merger certainly as far as Sudar Quickstep are concerned and, and Remco Avenepoel and Remco Avenepoel's camp being very much on board with that there was a story in Le Keep over the weekend about Remco Avenepoel being 
adamant that he wouldn't ride for Jumbo Visma. I don't think that's true. Um, there is even a suggestion that, as I say, he's been an architect with Bacala of this this move. And Lefebvre has effectively been cut out. And Patrick Lefebvre, one common theme in his interviews over the years has been that the staff of his team are the most important part of his team and that his loyalty lies with them. So, you know, don't assume that Patrick Lefebvre is heartlessly sort of leaving 60, 70 people unemployed here. Um, I think he feels that his hands are pretty much tied and it may well be that, you know, we heard Ilan van Wilder's reaction. In fact, I'll just play that now. Um, just we'll hear quickly what he said after Trevali Varizini yesterday. Uh, if you also read the newspaper, it's not uh, the best uh, times for, uh, for us as a team. And this victory is really for my teammates and uh, the staff to show that uh, the Wolfpack never gives up. And um, we don't agree with uh, all this uh, shit that is going on. So that was Van Vilder talking about this shit. And I have heard suggestions that a lot of these quick step riders are not very happy with Remco Evenepoel and his camp. Because again, he's going to be all right, Jack. And a lot of those other riders are not. Yeah, I mean, a lot of professional sport is uh, certainly in Europe. I know our, um, our American friends would point to the to the almost socialist structures in the, a lot of the team sports, the NFL, the NBA, the the, the baseball, um, the Major League Baseball. You know, there's there's a, a, a collective bargaining, isn't there? The 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 the, um, the athletes, you know, really have quite a lot of clout and that is not really the case in in cycling other than for the the biggest commodities and as you say Daniel it's that that squeezing down of, of pressure that that could uh, be brought to bear Remco Evenepoel will be absolutely fine he is one of a handful of potential uh, Grand Tour winners that, that exist and so he will be desirable just because of you know what he's able to deliver and there will be other riders who will be desirable um, for the you know the, the eventual uh, merged team if it were to happen and then everyone else will just have to make the best um, situation that they can at really short notice you know we're, we're now uh, early October and this really top riders would want to be sorted by now for sure. And, you know, 20 odd riders for Sudal Quickstep have been, you know, thrown into a state of complete uncertainty. They don't know whether their team will even exist next year. It may well not. Um, yes, you know, if the contracts have to be honoured and they still get the money, that's that's one side of uh, the equation. But you have to figure that most of them will want to carry on riding and then it will be a scramble for places. And when you look at the World Tour um, for next season, you know, there are quite a lot of places available across the other World Tour teams, you know, given that they could have 30 riders. Um, I would imagine teams like Ineos Grenadiers, Movistar, Alpacinda Koenig, especially who don't have that many uh, publicly confirmed riders signed on for next year yet. They have plenty of spaces uh, potentially available, you know, they'll be watching the situation very carefully to see who might be available, uh, you know, not necessarily on the cheap, but of course, you know, a rider who doesn't have that many other options, you know, may well uh, be available for, you know, less than they might be able to command elsewhere. But of course, you know, it, that sort of doesn't matter if they're already guaranteed their salaries uh, or, or the difference between what they're being offered and, and what they're currently being paid because of the, 
the the the, the license at Bacala's company holds. So it's a very complex situation. Um, and it's one that, uh, as I say, I just think it, it, it highlights that the world tour is almost since, since the days of it being the pro tour, you know, and before, you know, the, the whole establishment of it was to, to give some kind of structure and solidity and guarantee to not just the teams, but also the riders that ride for them. But every so often, you know, there's a bit of an earthquake that, that unsettles everything. And this is well, in recent memory, this is the the, the biggest, um, the you know the the biggest most seismic potential change that we've witnessed. I think. I think it's <clears throat> I think it's the irony of it all. It's probably what we call a growth crisis. It's it, I think that one of of the problems is that there's never been that many exciting riders. Not, there's never been. I've been, as you, as you know, following cycling for, for a long time. When you've got a guy winning all the Grand Tours and, 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 and a couple of guys winning all the classics, in a way, uh, the, the, the financial side of things is easier, you know, for teams than the, the, the other, for, you know, fan of the... But when you have a, an abundance of, of talents like this and strong personalities uh, and for a little bit too, too many... Uh, st you know, potential stars in a field where, when you don't have enough money or enough teams, that's when the problem uh, arises. And, and, and in a way, it's, it's probably a good thing. In, in the long term, uh, cycling is, is more exciting than it's uh, ever been, like the Netflix series uh, and the, the, the simple fact that Netflix came into cycling showed. So I think that that's just a matter of uh, adjusting to, 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 to this. Chaps, feels like we could have a huge, and we probably should have a huge conversation about the business model in cycling and how this problem just keeps presenting itself um, uh, sort of regular intervals every two or three years. And, you know, big questions about whether, well, the, the unfortunate reality is that oligarchs are the best option that cycling has at the moment. We should cycling lean into that. I don't think um, anyone is, uh, that's a, a solution that anyone necessarily wants apart from the, 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 the thing oligarchs. Is, you know, the, but, for the top guys, on. the wages are continuing to rise, aren't they? I mean, there's more rise on you know, multi-million euro a year contracts than there were 10 years ago and that's not just because of of inflation but this we see this across other sports so don't we if you pour more money in at the top through whatever source whether that's broadcasting rights or sponsorship or uh, or whatever the athletes get richer and so the the problem in inverted commas is still the same not enough money to go around or, or, you know, difficulties covering budgets, but really it's an affordability problem rather than a kind of, you know, on the precipice of a, of a complete collapse, a complete crisis. And I think that's why, you know, when, as you say, Francois, it's a problem of growth. Jumbo Visma have built themselves into, you know, they're almost like a sort of mid table business model that now is it on the, uh, on the field of play, so to speak, they have dominated, uh, you know, by rights, uh, their financial situation ought to be as strong and secure as uh, Ineos Grenadiers or, or another team that really doesn't have uh, the, the same difficulty in um, sort of jigsawing together its budget, the budget it needs to pay the athletes what they are worth. So it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it is a, uh, a situation that has evolved it's not a sort of existential crisis in the sense that suddenly the world tour is going to collapse but i just think it highlights the, the differences between the haves and the have-nots the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science well chaps the yumbo visma 
pseudo quick step merger non-merger fusion takeover it's it's dominated the headlines over the last few days hasn't it but there has been well as we talked about earlier there's been some exciting racing and we think there will be will there be an exciting finale to the season the last monument of the season on saturday uh tour of lombardy in lombardia starts in como finishes in Bergamo that's a sort of iteration of the route that we've seen before the Ghisallo comes early on the route after 38 kilometers then we've got well some classic very familiar climbs from the Tour of of, uh, Lombardy the Roncola after 100 kilometers Berbeno after 122 Crocetta Zambla Alta and then into the the finale I suppose the decisive route of the sorry the decisive climb on the route is likely to be the Passo di Ganda after 206 kilometers and then that again very familiar beautiful finale in Bergamo which features the climb the ascent of the Colle Aperto up the sort of cobblestones the the pebble dashed road up there through the old town in Bergamo and then finish in well in the low town the new town in Bergamo um chaps um let's start let's start kind of upside down uh, do you want to do you feel like making a prediction do you feel like speculating before we go on to talk about why it's going to be a poignant occasion on Saturday? Well, rog, speculation. I mean, Pog v. Pog v. Rog v. Potentially... Um, Carapaz. Evenepoel. Carapaz. Looking, you know, Evenepoel. sort of... Well, I mean, might, you know, sort of green shoots of, of something for Carapaz after a difficult season. Uh, ben Healy looks like he's going well, doesn't he? Um, I, I think there's a kind of a a, a new lease of life for Il Lombardia in the last couple of years. I think easy to say that because Pogacar's turned up and won it the last two years, and this year's field does look very strong. I suspect you know the fact that the World Championships were within August uh, rather than in a sort of later season slot um, may have had some impact on the fact that the field is 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 pretty deep and it should be a really uh, exciting final monument of the season and a, and a race deserving of the of the the moniker of a monument i guess yeah i, I suppose if if we follow the trend of recent uh, weeks uh, we should have a Jumbo Visma treble <laughs> with Evna with Evnapool on the but, Evnapool uh, yeah, on the wheel, just kind of you know circulating <laughs> circulating round, <laughs> yeah. getting involved. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe a merger already with a with a with a sort of quick step in the in the mix. I don't know. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah. I, I thought Roglic was really impressive in the, the Giro dell'Emilia, and um, and he really had a point to make. Uh, but it, by the same token, uh, uh, you know, Pogacar admitted he, he, he attacked too early and made a mistake by attacking early in the final climb, and he uh, he, he was willing to make amends. And I, I'm just, well, my impression is that his main goal was uh, uh, Lombardia. Uh, yeah, that the, the Pog and and Rog uh, and Rog uh, ob- is obviously the the, the the main thing with, with as usual the the extra. I, I I can't really see anybody else 
from the ones we mentioned, uh, un unless unless a long, long, long solo breakaway. It's, it's happened from time to time on Tour de in the Tour de Lombardia, uh, but apart from that, I mean, the the, the usual suspects uh, seems to me seem to me uh, uh, quite. I I, I found Carapaz yeah as, as well not uh, all right as you said in, in, in case of a breakaway maybe Ben Healy as you mentioned but I mean these are the guys uh, whom we've seen you know around in great shape in, at the end of the season so I I can't think of anybody else to be honest Thibaut Pino <laughs> uh, well yeah Thibaut Pino attacks from the gun and uh, and goes solo all the way to win Lombardia again well yeah, this brings no us <laughs> bullshit this bullshit uh, the ultimate bullshit um, this brings us to the swan song au revoir you see it feels like a feels a bit like your retirement francois um a series of very long drawn out swan songs from thibaut pino i don't know if thibaut pino is he going to do a sort of retirement a la francois tomazo is he going to do a week of the tour de france next year and then the following <laughs> the following year we'll find out that he's writing the media guide for groupama fdj um, like um francois it is well it's the final goodbye and um, we've known for a long time that he was going to end his career in uh, the Tour of Lombardy a race that he's won a race that he loves and we had that very emotional day at the Tour de France on the Markstein when it was sort of Thibaut Pinot day and we had the Viage Thibaut Pinot a, uh, a sort of hairpin bend that was that was colonised really by his adoring fans and we had Mark Madio's tears I said on the podcast I got a lift down the mountain that day with his brother Julian Pinot and and his mum, and that was that's a memory that will will certainly endure for me. Um, Francois, what is this to say that we haven't already said about Thibaut Pino? Um, I mean, I, I did think it would be, it might be interesting, entertaining, just to maybe pick out a few memories that, in your mind, and maybe I'll do the same, maybe Lionel as well, that sort of um, encapsulate his career, and yeah. Yeah, well, there's quite quite a few. Um, the, the thing already taking a kind of a backward view on the, on his career because it's 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 it was a good career. It was not a, a brilliant. He never was up there totally. Never won a Grand Tour or you know. But if you look in the history of French cycling, there's always been a guy like this that that's kind of uh, struck the. The the, the 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 French kind of uh, wet the French flair and we, we, we managed to kind of find a, the right link with the French uh, hearts and the French mind and there was René Vieto in the from the 30s to the 50s who never won a Grand Tour either and uh, was the same kind of swashbuckling attacking uh, you know and and. It, yeah, was the darling of the French for for reasons beyond sport. You see what I mean. And then you, there was obviously Raymond Poulidor, who, who probably won yeah, more races than the other two, but who also never won the Tour de France. Uh, he won a Grand Tour, La Vuelta, uh, but but also for for illogical reasons, was loved by the French more than Jacques Anquetil or other French champions at the time. And there, there was and and the French have the same relationship with Thibaut Pinot. Uh, they, they, they love him much more than they will ever love Romain Bardet, for instance, or who, who had a, a kind of similar career and the same kind of results. So that, that, that there's something with Pinot uh, that speaks to the French psyche or whatever you want to call it uh and as we saw in the on, on the markstein and um, that that appeals to the to us uh, uh a, a, a kind of a free 
I, I remember, well, let us go to the memories. I'll go to my, my, my first meeting with Thibaut Pinot was in, uh, on, the tour de, on the Tour de Romandie. I uh, can't remember the year. I think it was probably 2011, maybe. Well, when he, when he, maybe maybe earlier than that actually. I think it was the, the first major race uh, in which he 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 did well. Uh, I think he was the he won the King of the Mountain classification that year, and there was there was the the Queen stage of the Tour de Romandie that year, and he flew like like really he was flying uh, 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 over the mountain passes, flying over the climbs, and you had this feeling of this young kid. There was really like uh, there was a sense of freedom in the way he was riding. Like 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 he couldn't care about the tactics, strategy, uh, the other riders, the race itself. He's a guy, Thibaut Pinot, and he said it repeatedly. He likes to ride on his own. That's why that's why sometimes he attacks or he's in a group with two other guys, and you think he should collaborate. That's not the way Pinot likes to ride. He is a guy who spent all of his childhood, teens, and even now riding on his own in the mountains. That's what he likes. And um, and it was obvious from the start. And, and it was so I interviewed him after the that day when he was uh, wearing the the, the, the the King of the Mountain jersey. It was a pink jersey at the time uh, in the Tour de Romandie. And so I had this young kid in a pink jersey who was telling me, yeah, uh, uh, well, actually his love of freedom, you know, riding as, as a freedom tool. That's that's that was Thibaut Pinot to me. <laughs> Lionel? Yeah, a kind of a career of contradictions in a way. I mean, he's bowing out at the very top level at Il Lombardia. The only one of the five monuments that he's ever actually started is uh, Il Lombardia. Never ridden any of the other classics and just sort of established a, 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 um, a template in uh, in the race, didn't he? Because he was third in 2015 when Vincenzo Nibali won. He was fifth a couple of years later when Nibali won again. And then finally he won it in 2018 and when Nibali was second. Um, I suppose the... I don't want to make a jab at Francois, but Francois, the first tour you covered in 1986 was, uh, well, it was it was after the last French Tour de France victory by Bernardino the previous year. Uh, you did say that you would wait until a Frenchman won the Tour de France uh, before retiring yourself, but there was a period where the kind of the Pinot Bardet axis looked as if one or other than might with a bit of a following wind and, and a perfect course and everything aligning um you know that, that it that it might happen for one of them and i suppose 2019 was the, the year that pino looked so good didn't he won on the cold de tourmalet if my memory is right and he was really in the mix yeah. and then that terrible stage to team for him Côte de soie, de poser son vélo et de prendre place dans la voiture de son directeur sportif. He banged his knee on the handlebars, hadn't he, and was was in real difficulty. And I think, you know, that was kind of the in those handful of days we saw Thibaut Pinot's career kind of, you know, the 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 the, the breadth. You know, he he wasn't a sort of model of consistency. You know, he was, he was either brilliant or he was fragile. And I think there was something quite attractive, quite appealing about that fragility. And um, 
you, you know, no doubting his talent whatsoever. And we know that Dave Brailsford, you know, in the peak Sky years was a real admirer of Thibaut Pinot and, and in fact sort of, you know, did have half an eye on whether he'd be the sort of rider that he, he could sign for the team. But <laughs> when you look back at, uh, at at the way that Pinot's career has gone with, you know, one team, Francis Dijon, now Groupama FDJ, uh, with Mark Maddio as the boss and and that uh, that culture, you couldn't imagine uh, a, more of a kind of a fish out of water. It'd be like I don't know. It'd be like a goat in the centre of London, Puno in Team Sky, wouldn't it? Uh, just just wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't feel right. And uh, yeah, I, I think probably those those outstanding tour stage wins, Alpduez, um was was another one, and the very first one, which you know was coming at a time when. Um, you know the the French cycling was just emerging from a period when it was thought of as a little bit of a joke, wasn't it? It had gone through a real difficult um, era, the the the, the uh, cyclisme at de vitesse, but that stage win at Porrentois in twenty twelve, Madio out of the car door. It's just an an iconic image that will 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 stay with us, and I think it's those those highs and lows of Pino's career. Um, you know, they, they, they kind of, those moments really stand out in the mind and not many riders can you look back on their career and, and have those sort of handful of really sort of almost iconic moments that, that really sum up the, the, the highs and lows in, in quite as evocative a way. And I suppose the other one, this is the Giro d'Italia where he was in that four horse race going into the last mountain stage and the time trial, pretty much everybody knowing that he was going to finish fourth because he wasn't quite good enough at um, either of the uh, the key disciplines required, certainly not in the time trial. Um, if if it, it was Nibali, Quintana and Dumoulin he was up against, wasn't it? And uh, But just the fact that he was in there in the mix, it just added an, a, a different dimension, a different element to the, to the race. And whenever he was on song, you know, he did, um, he did create that excitement, I think. I think sort of the the coordinates on my kind of personal Thibaut Pino, well, the, the Thibaut Pino gram um, or the graph, um, uh, as you say, line of sort of wild peaks and troughs. There. I remember sort of meeting meeting his brother for the first time, his brother and coach Julian, the day after he'd sort of, well, we'd, he, these descending yips had been exposed in the 2013 Tour de France. And that was when I think, you know, sort of the illusion that had maybe been created the previous year when he won a stage in his first Tour de France, that this was a guy who was going to go on and dominate a Tour de France, win the Tour de France. And that was where that sort of illusion was punctured. And I just remember Julian, I think it was the next morning where I met him for the first time, we talked about what had happened and Thibaut was simply sort of incapable of going around these bends. I can't remember which climb it was in the Pyrenees. And just this total sort of depression, again, a real sort of deep emotional low, which sort of, again, kind of set the tone. And then the following year, um, I went to a training camp in the Pyrenees. I think they were staying somewhere like Argelès Gazost or um, somewhere like that. And um, again, there'd been a lot of talk about him him resolving these problems and uh, he was very bullish there and the team was very bullish but then they all went out one day for a, a team time trial drill and they went out team time trial training and I remember I think it was Yvonne Madiot one of the direct sportifs he stopped the session about 15 kilometers in and told them they were all a shambles and sent them back to the hotel in disgrace um, and this was sort of it kind of served early notice of the, the the sort of struggles of a team and an individual kind of straining to compete with 
for example, Sky, who had found a, a sort of winning formula that was clearly about much more than just being gifted, recruiting the most gifted individuals. It, it sort of maybe hinted as well at a discomfort on Pino's part in that kind of straight-jacketed, po-faced, sort of highly stressed existence of the Tour de France contender. I remember also on that training camp, he he sort of raced Kenny Ellison, another very promising young Frenchman at the time, up Autocam. They were doing a recon for the Tour de France. And... Um, and and both of them in their own way, you know, Kenny was never going to be a Tour de France winner. But, you know, over the next 10 years, they certainly brought a great degree of respectability back to French cycling. Um, but maybe, as you say, Lionel, and you say, Francois, didn't live up to the lofty expectations that people had. And after that, it was sort of a flickering light over the next few years. In 2015, he lost time in the Tour de France in the Netherlands straight away, never was in the fight. 2016, similar, he got ill. Um, you mentioned the 17 Giro Lionel, which he almost won, um, if to, to, to be fair, he was only um, one minute, 17 seconds off Dumoulin. And then, you know, it all the nine, 2019 Tour de France, the heartache for the French. And and then the last three or four years, well, they were a real struggle, weren't they? With a lot of sort of um, injury problems, mysterious injury problems, lingering problems after that 2019 Tour de France took a long time to to resolve um but yeah it's been a, it's been a wild ride and we shall we shall miss him we we really shall um chaps we've talked a long time about Thibaut Pino um, but it would have been remiss <laughs> not to because he is as I said to you guys before we recorded today he's a crowd pleaser a lot of our listeners are very have become very attached to Thibaut Pino so I think it was it was right for us to give us a worthy send-off Seul en tête, seul au monde, seul dans son monde. Ah les amis, il ne gagnera jamais le Tour de France, mais ça il l'a gagné. Just a quick one to say, I, I mean it's, it's far less interesting, but it's a sign of uh, Mathieu Ladanius. He's uh, retiring as well, his teammate, and and you, you can tell he was waiting for Pinot to retire to retire himself like like in that group of my team they were all they all were so much at the service of Thibaut Pinot for many years that Pinot retiring led other uh, riders of the team of this generation generation like goalless you know what what to do now without Thibaut you know that that was a, a little hint also at, uh, also Francois I mentioned uh, Kenny Elisander it's not not connected he no longer arrives for a little trek but um, he during the Vuelta Espana in case anyone was curious what he's doing next year because he doesn't have a contract with Little Trek. Um, he told me during the Vuelta that he was reconsider. Well, he was sort of thinking about what to do next. Um, he's in his, I think he's 32 next, um, the 32, 33 next year, maybe. And um, doesn't currently have a contract for next year that we know about, but wasn't 100% sure whether he wanted to continue his professional career. But again, a sort of, um, you know, a lot of those guys in that generation, I think they, it, it was very, very tough being a, trying to be a GC rider, trying to be a sort of climber in those years. And Pino often talked about how a lot of the pleasure and a lot of the fun had been sucked out over the years of that life. Um, and yeah, and we, we, we hear that a lot these days, don't we? That it's becoming harder and harder to be a professional cyclist and compete at the top level. Greg Van Avermaet, we haven't mentioned uh, thus far. He's another well star of the last 10, 15 years, who is bowing out Paris Tour, I believe. Um, Francois, we're going to end today with, well, a much more, a more poignant, 
um, a very sad farewell for someone that we both knew. You knew him much better than uh, than me. A gentleman called uh, Francis Lafargue, uh, a Frenchman, a Basque, who was really, well, I described him on Twitter as, as an institution. I know he was an institution, even though his well, years in professional cycling only overlapped slightly with mine. But I was always told that this was a gentleman who was the first real press officer in professional cycling. And he... He worked alongside uh, Miguel Indurain and Perico Delgado at Reynolds. It became uh, Banesto and then it came Queste Paogne. And he was a gentleman that was much loved in professional cycling. And, and he died last week at home in the Basque Country at the age of 68. And as I said, Francois, he was a gentleman that you knew very well. Yeah, I knew I knew Francis uh, very well. He was I uh, was uh, a friend. You could say he was. A, I I met him on the Tour de France, and he was uh, he, he was a he was just a passionate guy who uh, he he actually joined what was to become Movistar and was at the time Reynolds uh, just because he was a fan of cycling in the Basque Country. He was uh, his family lived in Espelette, place where the famous uh, Tour de France uh, time trial took place. Francois, is this, and, uh, uh, is this true that he... Uh, so I read a story, and I'm going to read a bit out in a minute, um, but he s- sort of presented himself. He approached um, yeah. the... the, the his, um, Benesto Reynolds boss uh, Jose Miguel Echevari in the Plaza de, Cal- de Castillo in Pamplona in 1983 mm. the year when they were going to do the Tour yeah. de France for the first time and he said you're going to need someone for the Tour de France how about yeah, me yeah. No, it, it, yeah, that's exactly that he was a fan he was going to every single Basque uh, little Basque races and, and w- I found out by doing the tourist guides for the Tour de France in from Bilbao last year how many races there in the Basque Country that's amazing that there's like three races every Sunday and lots of uh, professional riders so he, uh, Francis was just a fan of cycling he was going to all those races and he, he came straight to Jose Miguel Echavarri whom he didn't know yet and it was Eusebio Unzwe was already in the mix and he told them right guys you can't be on all those races you can't spot all the riders I'm, I'm going to those races I can spot young guys that could join your team and also I'm French so I speak French so if you want to ride in France and ride uh, uh, races in France and of course including the Tour de France I'm your guy I'll do whatever you want and so, so he was so keen that uh, Jose Miguel, uh, who was the uh, Echavarri, was the, the head of Reynolds, was a, a former, uh, pr- you know, pro sprinter in the Basque Country, and uh, who, uh, was also who had been a bar tender and a restaurant owner. I mean, it was a, a, all a funny bunch. They said, "Okay, uh, get on board," and he never left. So that, that was not that was the early eighties, and 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 he went on, you know, to work with them for. Uh, nearly to, well, he was not officially, you know, working for Movie Star anymore. But I mean, he was really part of that, uh, the building of that team that came from a small Basque team, you know, in many ways, to discovering uh, great riders like Alvaro Pino was the, the, among the first ones, then Perico Delgado, then Miguel Indurain, and 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 winning the Tour de France and becoming the, one of the well landmarks of, I mean, you know, Movie Star. Now, now they've been around for. You know, forty years. So I mean, that, that is part of that story from from day one. Um, and it's funny because I I met uh, Francis Lafargue on the Tour de France one day. They were celebrating with Jose Miguel. I think Eusebio was there probably, and they they celebrating in the restaurant the, the uh, stage victory by Julian Gorospe. 
and they were and they were celebrating the movie star way. I mean, the, 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 their way, you know, that, which means there were lots of uh, vino tinto and jamon involved. And uh, so we 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 end up a couple of journalists getting how could I say. Yeah, well, getting drunk and and eating far too much with these guys, and 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 really a link was established with uh, with them and uh, Jose Miguel and, and Francis, and and it went on and on, and and I so I, I remember one year on Criterium International, I think it was eighty eight probably, uh, I, and also in Paris before I saw this young Francis introduced me to this young writer who he said he had he had discovered in a race with Eusebio Unzwe what called Miguel Indorain saying we don't know what to do with this guy but he's so good that you know uh, we don't know if he's going to be a climber a, a time trialist or, but he, he was telling me at the time his heart rate when we discovered it, the, the, this guy he's, he's, he was already uh, around 35 you know we, and so they sent him to Italy well those were the days uh, you know uh, Miguel Indorain started to train with an Italian doctor but anyway that that's that that and 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 I remember uh, on that day of the Criterium International, uh, Indurain won the time trial, beating Stephen Roach, uh, Laurent Fignon, all the stars of the time. And at, at that time, Francis was telling me, "You see, this young guy is going to win the Tour de France, maybe more than one Tour de France, but we're carving." This guy, like like a diamond, you know, working on him, so so that one day he becomes a jewel. Is and so that, that that's what they did, you know, that's what they did. So they did it the good way, they did it the bad way. Uh, that that was the custom at the time. The good thing about Francis uh, was that he was he, he never lied. He, he was never a guy who tell you doping. No, we don't do, we don't take anything. Uh, he was always saying, write if you find stuff, write it. I'm not going to say anything about it. You know, he was he was. Not only the first press chief, probably uh, uh, officer in in cycling, but he was also a, hon a, 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 a honest guy. You know, if there was a problem, he, w he was not shying away from it. And uh, I told that story in in the series we did the, this summer with uh, with Lionel when when I got the, uh, the Delgado scoop of Delgado telling me he had uh, he, he had failed a dope test. Well, it happened because of the, the friendship I had with Francis. I, I simply knocked on the hotel. On on the on this on the hotel room door of, of Delgado, Francis was in the room and he said, "Yeah, c come in. You can you can come in. You're a friend of mine." And that's when I asked Delgado, uh, Perico, tell me, did you fail a dope test? And he said, "Yes." And uh, and did you dope? And he said, "No." And it, it was like you know at the time no social media, no nothing. I, I I just rang the story to the to the office and I was alone with the story for a long time and all these kind of little scoops and exclusives I had uh, were due to that friendship I had and also to that very special mentality they had at, at what is now Movistar and that kind of mentality we see uh, in the in the films they made you know they, they, they looked from the outside to be very strange kind of aloof team and when you know them they're on that quite the opposite uh, and I mean Francis was so nice so kind and so friendly and so helpful that I even managed to have a couple of very very good Alejandro Valverde interviews, uh, which, which as you know, uh, I mean, you know, Valverde is a, is a nice guy, but he was not very easy to interview, especially if, if your Spanish is not great. And and with Francis, it was it was uh, perfect. Why? I mean, that, there was he, he had a nickname um, in the peloton uh, for a long time. The, the French journalist called him Miguel uh, Miguel Adi. 
Miguel said, because actually you, you, you had an interview with Miguel Indurain, uh, and and uh, Miguel was giving a very short answer, yeah. and then uh, Francis was for translating this, yeah. for, for for hours, you know. So actually, everything you find uh, on on uh, on record as Indurain, Indurain said was actually Francis Lafargue. So he was kind of the voice of uh, Spanish cycling for uh, abroad for for many many years. That was Francis. Uh, <laughs> Francois, he, um, well, the, the first time I met him, he told me a great story about Indurain. I was writing a piece for a, a book about climbs in Europe and about the Porte de la Rue, uh, climbing the Pyrenees. And he told me a story about how um, he used to forage at the bottom of a sort of road around the back, the backside of the La Rue, forage for mushrooms. And Indurain had, and his brother Prudencio would always go on this tiny sort of gutted gravel road um, into this forest where Francis would look for mushrooms. That always a few days before the Tour de France, it was about a 260 loop from his home in Pamplona. And this was kind of a ritual that he would go through. But um, Francis Lafargue who, as I said, died last week, sadly, at the age of 68. I'm just going to finish, chaps. We're just going to play out, if you will, with um, something uh, one of our other colleagues, Carlos Arribas, wrote about Francis in El País, uh, about Francis Lafargue last week. He said, The memory of cycling, which is its eff- its essence, the substance from which it is made and which gives it meaning, is not found in books, but in spoken word in the lives of those who tell the stories. They, with their lived memories, weave together the threads of the past and are are the generous bosom that nourishes us, like Francis Lafargue used to do in the mornings at the tour starts or in the evenings over a glass of wine. The tour was a builder of legends and Francis, an ambassador, was capable of converting Indurain's Spanish monosyllables into sprawling sermons in French to the delight of journalists and for the enrichment of their stories ensuring they quickly forgot how he vexed them in his other role, more gendarme to Perico and Indurain than their mouthpiece. A bodyguard to the sacred figures, the man in the shadows of their victories. That was Francis Lafargue, who left us last week. Francois, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, Lionel. Thank you, Chad. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney.